0: After a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. We always begin with silent prayer because we sin. It's amazing. Somebody's telling me right before we came in here about a conversation they had, uh, with someone in another part of the country, pastor we don't know, and the pastor was teaching them that, uh, when you, when you're safe, you don't have a sin nature anymore. This has been a problem since almost day one in Christianity is Christians not knowing what to do with sin in the Christian life. 1 John one nine says it's simple. If we just admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He, because of his character, he's faithful and just. He immediately forgives us of the sins that we name, the sins that we identify, admit to, and he cleanses us not only from those sins, but all unrighteousness. So we begin every class just as an aspect of reinforcing this principle that it's important for us to keep short accounts on sin, confess our sin, but the issue isn't confessing sin. The issue is staying in fellowship. It's walking by the Spirit. That's so often lost uh, <clears throat> in the thinking of some people. So uh, let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Father, we're thankful, so very grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can come before your throne of grace, that we can reflect upon uh, who you are and who we are and think about your word, the challenge from your word that it's designed to teach us, to instruct us, to correct us, give us guidance, direction so that we can become mature believers and faithful witnesses. And we have such a great example of this whole concept of being a faithful witness from our study of Acts. Now, Father, as we come to the end of our study, we pray that you would uh, help us to reflect and remember upon the things that we studied, that this might become a a major part of our thinking, having understood the foundation of the church and its expansion by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 28, and we are probably going to come close to finishing at least the exposition of Acts 28 tonight. I will probably come back and do a final review, overview next week just to consolidate some of the things that we've learned and things that we've studied but this has been a tremendous study. I know that I have learned a lot going through this. I hope you have too. I think it's important to understand the historical foundation for what we see in the uh, in the establishment of the early church. To understand Acts is in many cases, many ways to understand the background and the context for most of the New Testament epistles, at least most of Paul's epistles. Now we come to this last Last section, we see that, that in terms of Luke's purposes, he has brought us to the end of his intention. And his intention wasn't to give a biographical sketch of Peter and Paul, wasn't uh, designed to uh, take us all the way through the foundation period of the church age. His intention was to show uh, the fulfillment of the of the mandate that the our Lord gave to the disciples at the very beginning, just before he ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, actually he told them that they were to stay in Jerusalem. And in verse 7 he says it's not for, in answer to their question, if this was at this time that he would restore the kingdom, he said it's not for you to know the times and the seasons Which the Father has put in His own authority, but you will receive, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we have come to the end of the earth now that we have arrived in Rome. It is the expansion of the gospel and the establishment of the church as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and this lays the foundation. This is the opening chapter in something that has gone on in terms of the expansion by the Holy Spirit down through the last uh, 1900 years. As we come to the end of this, just a look at the map. Paul has finally arrived in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. We went through that last week, bringing us to that point where this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Paul that he would come to, God would bring him to Rome and he would uh, proclaim the gospel in Rome and we reviewed at the end of last time the doctrine of the faithfulness of God. Now as we get into this next section beginning in verse 17, we're going to see a reminder of one of the key messages and the key themes in Acts which has to do with the kingdom of God. In Acts 28:17 we begin this closing section in the book of Acts which gives us insight into the impact of the gospel in the Jewish community of Rome. And this is one of the greatest evangelistic uh, consequences that we've seen uh, in Paul's ministry to the Jewish community, because in many places we saw a number of converts, but we also saw saw a hostile reaction. But what we'll see here is that a large proportion of the Jewish community in Rome responded to his uh, instruction on, on the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. We don't know if it was half. The indications from the grammar would suggest that it was a roughly equivalent proportion. We don't know if there was a little, a few more who became believers, a few less, but it was a roughly equivalent, uh, equivalent number. So in Acts 28.17, Paul just is rehearsing for them, is going to rehearse for the Jewish leaders how he came to be in Rome. He had been placed under house arrest, and had which meant that he had a certain degree of freedom. Uh, he still was uh, closely guarded by uh, members of the Praetorian Guard. We learned this from a reference in Philippians he has uh, he's not in a cell he's not in a prison he's in house arrest he has a certain amount of freedom but he is still very closely watched he's staying in his own rented quarters that he has to pay for and he was enabled to do that probably through the financial support of the believers in uh, in Rome so he arrives there and we're told that it came to pass after three days so during those three days, Paul is not just resting, Paul is organizing. He's finding out who the leadership, uh, is in the, in the Jewish community, who the primary leaders are in the synagogues in, uh, Rome, and he is inviting them to come to a meeting so that he can determine what they have heard about, uh, his, his imprisonment, what they've heard from, from, uh, Jerusalem, and what they might know about the gospel. They would not be completely ignorant of the gospel because we know from a comment from Suetonius that the reason that Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome uh, about ten years earlier was due to a conflict and riots over someone that Suetonius identified as Crestas, spelling it C H R E E S. T-O-S, as opposed to Christos, but most people believe that he's identifying some sort of of, uh, disagreement within the Jewish community at that time over Jesus as Messiah. The Jews were expelled from Rome, and then they returned. I've read different accounts, and I'm not sure what the population was. One account I read citing... Uh, an article in the Encyclopedia Judaica was that the Roman population, the uh, Jewish population in Rome at this time was 10,000, and some more recent uh, commentaries I've seen numbers as high as 40,000. So somewhere between 10 and 40,000 uh, would be the size of the Jewish community living in Rome at this particular time. And so Paul calls these leaders together, and he addresses them, men and brethren. So the leadership was composed exclusively of males, and this would be typical in the Jewish community as it was in the Christian church, in the early church. The leadership of the church was upon the males, and that was because they didn't atomize the synagogue or the church into individuals. We've shrunk American society down to where we, we look so, we've democratized it so much to where we put an emphasis on individuals, whereas in the early, early days of this republic, uh, leadership and people still viewed the ma- primary makeup of the nation as being families. This is why men had the voting franchise wasn 't because they were against women wasn 't because the founding fathers were misogynists it 's that they understood that the basic key um, st- stabilizing influence in a nation was the family, and the head of the household was the father. And so the male was the one, the man was the one who voted. It, he represented the family. And this they, they this was derived from a Christian influence. Now, in many ways, that had lended itself to some abuse. But that doesn't mean that the foundational issue of male leadership was wrong. All through the scriptures, the emphasis in God's command is always in terms of male leadership. The male is the spiritual head of the home and is the one that God is going to be, is going to hold accountable for the spiritual welfare of the home. So Paul, uh, brings these, the male leaders from the uh, Jewish community to meet with him in his home. We don't know how large a space he had. He's going to have a larger group later on. He may have had a, a fairly, uh, uh, spacious Place to live, or they could have gone outside and met uh, met in a courtyard, perhaps. But we don't know at all the kind of um, of uh, location or what kind of place he stayed. And then he begins to summarize the events. He doesn't go into details. He just says, first of all, he asserts his innocence that under Roman law, they never found anything for which to find him guilty. He says, though I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, and he deals with the fact that he he didn't violate the law of Moses, and he didn't violate any of the traditions of the fathers. Now, remember what we've learned is that you, in, in the history of Judaism and Old Testament Mosaic Judaism, there was originally the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. Then following the exile to Babylon, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, by the third or fourth generation, specifically under the leadership of Ezra, they began to reform, in a positive sense, a a, a biblical basis for uh, worship in the temple. By the time you get into about the 3rd century B.C., this begins to lay the foundation for what later becomes your different religious groups within Judaism. Uh, you can trace back the origins of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and some other groups to that time. But they began to try to devise a way to prevent the people from violating the Mosaic Law as they had done before so God wouldn't kick them out of the land again. And the way this is usually taught is that you have the 613 commandments, and in order to keep anyone from breaking one of those 613 commandments, these rabbis begin to develop a, a series of rules and regulations that w- would be sort of a fence constructed around those 613 commandments so that you would have to break one of those other commandments uh, before you could break one of the 613 commandments. It was designed to keep the people from uh, breaking, one, breaking the Mosaic law. And then later on, after the time of Christ, there was a subsequent group that came along, actually two groups, the Tanaim and the Amarim, who built further fences around the law. And this became uh, the, known as the traditions of the Father. But by the time of the first century, you didn 't have any of this codified yet; it was part of an oral law that was taught by the by the Pharisees, and that actually isn 't codified until uh, Judah the Prince in the early um, early third century uh, systematizes that and codifies it in what we call the Mishnah and so at this time, you don 't have the Talmud or some of those additional uh, regulations. But that's what Paul describes here when he says, when he talks about the customs of our fathers. That's different from the Mosaic Law. So he's asserting two things. Number one, he didn't violate the Mosaic Law. And number two, he didn't violate any of these uh, customs of the fathers that had grown up around the law. He wasn't violating the legalistic, even the legalistic regulations of the Pharisees. But nevertheless, he says, I was delivered as a prisoner uh, from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And then he asserts his innocence, verse 18, who when they had examined me wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. So he again asserts his, his innocence there. In verse 19, he goes on to describe this, that when the Jews, and this isn't, this isn't a racial slur against everyone who's Jewish, who's an ethnic Jew. The term the Jews, as it's used, for example, in the Gospels as well as in Acts, is a term that was used to describe the religious leadership of the Jews. It's not an anti-Semitic a reference that was understood to include all of the Jewish people, just a reference to the Jewish leadership leadership in Jerusalem. When the Jews spoke against it, he says, as they came, and we went through the whole um, story, he was compelled to appeal to Caesar, and he concludes again, reaffirms his innocence, not that I had done anything of which to accuse my nation. In other words, he asserts his, his his total innocence. For this reason, he says, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. So here he is emphasizing, the, again, the gospel. He focuses attention on the hope of Israel. He's mentioned this earlier in several passages. Uh, for example, in Acts 23.6, as he is being um, evaluated by the Sanhedrin, uh, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. So he, he makes the gospel the centerpiece of what he is uh, proclaiming. In acts twenty six six again he re, uh, refers to this as the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The hope is resurrection, and resurrection comes by Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. He is the one who conquered death. so the term hope of the resurrection is a term that that summarizes all of the work of Christ on the cross plus his Burial and resurrection. In Acts 26, 7, he references it again when he was giving testimony to King Agrippa. He says, for this hope's sake, I am accused by the Jews. So he emphasizes the hope of the re- resurrection, which emphasizes God's plan of salvation and the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Remember the episode where, where, uh, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees because he is his, of uh, his claim to be the Messiah. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. He's, he's emphasizing there his eternality. And then he goes on in uh, another passage in a conflict with the Sadducees to talk about the promise of the resurrection to Abraham, where his response to them is that Abraham never saw the promise of ownership of the land. Therefore, if God is going to be true to his promise to give the land to to Abraham, there must be a future resurrection so that God can fulfill his promise. And he particularly pointed that argument at the Sadducees because they denied the reality of physical bodily uh, resurrection. So in these passages, he's folk, this, this phrase, the hope of the resurrection, he's emphasizing, uh, the gospel and the gospel, uh, the gospel ministry. Now in verse 21, he, then they, then they respond to what he has said as he summarized the events leading up to why he is there. They respond by saying, well, we'd either received letters from Judea. Now the word there in the Greek, is a grammatia, which indicates can refer to a letter, but it also describes official documents. So what this shows us is that even though Paul had appealed to Rome and when he, and because Paul had appealed to Rome, he was transported to Rome, but the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem didn't follow him. They stayed behind and they didn't even send letters of condemnation. So there's no official documents coming from the Jewish leadership in Rome and they didn't follow him to Rome to provide accusation, uh, against him, uh, before Caesar. This is, pro- they probably never did. We're not told because Luke's account ends at this time. Paul will remain a prisoner in Rome for two years. We're not told whether they the, the Jewish leadership ever showed up, but it's very likely that they didn't, and this is why Paul was ultimately released and um, in order to continue his, his ministry. So the Jewish leadership there says, we haven't received anything. There's been no official communication from Judea about you, and no one has reported or spoken anything evil of you. So as far as they're concerned, they're meeting Paul for the first time, and he is a neutral observer. And they respond to him then in verse 22 saying, but we desire to hear from you what you think for concerning this sect. See, that indicates they're already knowledgeable about Christianity, and Christianity in the early church was viewed as a sect or a subset of Judaism. They weren't viewed as a different religion. In fact, it really wasn't until you get into the late 1st century and early 2nd century, after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and then especially after the second Jewish revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt, that you see a strong distinction made uh, separating Christianity from its Jewish roots. So they address Paul and they say, we want to know about this sect, that is this group of Jews that are believing that this Jesus is the Messiah because we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So it, obviously they they understand that this is extremely controversial, but they're willing to give it a an objective hearing. And this is one of the most... Un, unusual uh, gatherings because other places where Paul has taught, uh, except for Ephesus. Ephesus, he had about three months before it caused a great controversy. But here they seem to be gathering. They really want to hear the facts, and they're really interested. And the end result, I think, is uh, shows this, that a large proportion responded to the gospel message. Now, Paul at this time decides to, we need to have a meeting, we need to have more people here, and so they uh, arrange for a a later date at which time he is going to uh, teach them about Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. So verse 23 states, so when they had appointed him a day, so they all got their calendars out, and they picked a date. And they uh, set up a meeting, and many came to him at his lodging. So now it's a much, much larger group. And so obviously the place where he was staying was not just a small apartment, uh, or at least it had access to a much larger area that could accommodate a large number of people. So they came to him at his lodging, and he explained to them and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. Now, those two words, explained and solemnly testified, are words we ought to pay attention to. The word explained there is the Greek word ektithemi, which means to explain something, to go through it point by point, to expose the, the heart of a matter and to basically do what we would call exposition. The, our word exposition comes from the word expose, to uh, bring out the details of a passage. Now, we often refer to this in terms of its root process, which is exegesis, from the Greek verb exigeo. Uh Exegeto means to draw something out. Uh, recently, I had a conversation with some, someone, a, a pastor, was telling me that that um, <clears throat> that he was asked a question by uh, someone who said, "Why don't you do exegesis in the pulpit?" I said, "Well," and he said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, you don't put the Greek and Hebrew words up on the screen," and he said, "Well, that's not exegesis. That's just putting Greek and Hebrew words up on the screen." <sighs> See, a lot of people don't understand what exegesis is. Pastor, I've never known a pastor who did exegesis in the pulpit. Does that surprise you? I have never, ever known a pastor who did exegesis in the pulpit. What you get in the pulpit is the result of the exegesis he's done in his study. But you would be bored to tears if I got up here and did exegesis. And when you're doing exegetical work, what you're basically doing is you're sitting down, you'll look at your verbs like this and say, okay, this is an imperfect middle indicative. Now, there's uh, nine or ten different nuances to an imperfect tense. Now, I have to sit down with the grammar and go through each of those nuances to decide which one best fits this scenario. You know I'm not I'm not doing that's exegesis. The result of the exegesis is I come back and I say well in an imperfect tense this refers to a, an ongoing action in past time and it would indicate that Paul was explaining many different things here. He's he's going through in detail uh, a lot of different points and explaining a lot of different things related to uh, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Uh it's a uh middle voice because of its uh, basic formation, and it is an indicative mood, and then you have to look at what it means, and you have to do word study and those kinds of things. That's exegesis. Coming to the conclusions and teaching what the passage says on the basis of that conclusion really is an exegesis. That's exposition. Now, there are times when you get into some nitty-gritty issues related to various uh, various things that are said, and you have to go through what your exegetical process was in more detail so that people can understand that when you say that this verse ought to be translated a certain way, which isn't how it's translated in the on the text in front of them, that they can understand why a pastor says that. You can't just arbitrarily come along and say, Well, I think this verse really ought to be translated like this. People need to understand why you do it that way and what the rationale is for changing what appears to be um, the meaning of the text, at least in, in in English. So that's the process. So what Paul is doing here he is he's going to explain and then the second word which is the word in the box on the right, he's going to solemnly testify. Now, this is a compound word in the Greek. It's dia, that's a uh, preposition that is a uh, that is uh, affixed, uh, a prefix to the verb martyromai. And that is from the verb meaning to, uh, to bear witness in court, to give a uh, testimony, this is the word root word that Jesus uses back in Acts one eight, that you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. So Paul is fulfilling that mandate as it's been fulfilled all the way through uh, Acts, and we've seen it from the very beginning with Peter, uh Peter and John. We saw it with Stephen and with Philip and with the Apostle Paul and his entourage is there uh, bearing witness to the gospel. Now, the object of his explanation and his testimony are the content of his explanation and testimony here relates to the kingdom of God. Now, we know this is a broad doctrine, an important doctrine, and it's mentioned numerous times in the book of Acts as it is in the gospels. He's still talking about the uh, kingdom of, of God, and he's explaining that to this Jewish audience. And the next thing that we see there is he is persuading them. We'll look at this verb in just a minute in the next verse. It's the Greek verb patho. He's persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning t- t- till evening. So he's not just teaching from seven o'clock to eight o'clock at night. He's not just teaching on Sunday morning with a little twenty-minute or ten-minute break in between. He's teaching from morning until evening. This is an all-day Bible class. This was common in many places in the world. You had up until the twentieth century when you had cars and you could easily get to church and drive a, drive a long distance. And back in the um, uh, in the pioneer days and days of horse and buggy, a lot of times in different places, if you've ever been to Fredericksburg, Texas, they had these things, like little, little cabins they call Sunday houses. And the ranchers would have a Sunday house and it was a very small little, little cabin and the ranchers would come in on Sunday night and this is where they would stay overnight on Sunday, uh, excuse me, they'd come in on Saturday night and they would stay there on Saturday night and then they would be in town all day for church on Sunday. So there would be church and there would be other activities and things of that nature before they would then go home because it took so much time to ride a horse or come in a carriage or buggy to get into into town. So it, it took a while. So Bible classes were lengthy. Another reason Bible classes are lengthy is because when you're dealing with sophisticated and significant concepts, a lot of times you can't develop them in 15 or 20 minutes. One of my favorite stories you've heard me tell many times is a story about Jay Vernon McGee, who's a well-known Bible teacher. He's known for his his uh, ministry called uh, Through the Bible, and he was originally from Waxahachie, Hatch- Waxahach- Texas. Although I've never known anybody from Waxahachie talk quite like he did. There are numerous little stories about <clears throat> about. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, after seminary for many years, he had a ministry at the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. But he was invited back in his senior years to speak in chapel at Dallas Seminary. Just before chapel, he found out he only had about 20 minutes to speak. When he got up to speak, he said, He said, I just learned that I only have 20 minutes to speak. You can't say anything about the Bible significantly in 20 minutes. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> the sad thing is, in many churches, that's all you get is 20 minutes. But, but there's so much in the Word, and there's so much that needs to be developed and correlated and put together, and people need to be reminded. You know, Sunday morning people show up, there's a certain amount of people that just show up on Sunday morning, for whatever reason. And, and by the time you come back the next Sunday, they can barely remember what they thought about on Saturday, much less the previous Sunday. So you have to have review, put things together, constant repetition. All of this takes, all of this takes time. So Paul is working through something. The other thing I want to observe here is that he's persuading them. He's persuading them. That means he wants to change their minds. So he is organizing his material in a way that he is contrasting it with what they have heard within Judaism. That's a form of apologetics. He is contrasting truth with error. So that they can understand that the, even when there are similarities, there are still differences. And that's how you develop critical thinking skills in people. Sadly, there are some people, they just want to be told what to think. They don't want to be told why they should believe it that way. Or how what they've learned fits with other components of scripture. They just want to be told what to think and then go home and leave. And, and that leads to a lot of superficial, uh, superficial Christianity. So he's persuading them and notice it takes him from morning until evening to go through all the messianic prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. Now you remember Just after I left to go to Kiev, that first Thursday night when I was gone, we showed a video from Michael Rydelnik. You can go out on YouTube and you can find a number of different videos. Most of these were done through Day of Discovery Ministry. Some of you remember M.R. DeHaan and his son Richard DeHaan. That's the Day of Discovery Ministry. And so they've got a number of videos of Michael Rydelnik, dealing with Old Testament prophecy, Messianic prophecy. And um, what he, one of the issues today, I didn't know this until I first heard Michael talk on one of these videos, I, I knew there was something I was missing when I was an, a, a student in Old Testament studies in the Old Testament because I would hear things that some of the professors would say, and I would just assumed everybody was on the same page and everybody believed in Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But they would say things about isaiah seven fourteen or isaiah nine six or other prophecies that just didn 't sound right, and they would' things like dual fulfillment that this was really fulfilled at the, not long after it was written historically, but then it 's applied by the disciples and I would think. That's not how I've heard that, I, but I really didn't understand that there was a huge controversy behind this because that was never never really brought out. And I didn't l- realize that until I heard Michael talk several years ago, and he talked about how when he started at Dallas, nobody in the Old Testament department believed in uh, Messianic prophecy. Except for one particular passage, he said that one. Oh, now all of that makes sense. All of a sudden, a whole segment of my seminary career suddenly came into focus. Uh, my question for people like that is, and when, and and just as another aside, when I was in, uh, went to this last conference at Baptist Bible Seminary last September for the uh, hermeneutic study uh, study group meeting. Um, uh, there was a guy who was at the conference, who's in the doctoral program there, who pastors a church in Colorado Springs, and he had missed an earlier flight and was still sitting in the waiting room in the in the airport uh, when I got there for my pl- flight to come home. And so we struck up a conversation, and he was had just started a series in Matthew. He was uh, three or four chapters ahead of me. On, uh, and he was teaching Matthew on Sunday morning, and so I started talking to him about the Messianic prophecies fulfilled in Matthew. C- came to discover he didn't believe there were any real that there was maybe one uh, Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. I had never met someone like that that I'd known about and have a conversation. So I just asked him question. Uh, the question I should have asked him that I didn't think about was, how do you explain what Jesus talked about to the disciple to disciples on the road to Emmaus? If you don't have but one Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, that must have been a really short conversation, but it was about a 10-mile walk. What did they talk about? Now, what did Paul talk about here when he's going through the law and the prophets? He talks from morning to evening, showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you only have one Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, that's that's a short conversation, Why did it take him all day? How do you handle that? There were, there are numerous, numerous prophecies related to, uh, the Messiah in in the Old Testament. So Paul is talking about, uh, the Kingdom of God. I want to go back and why is he explaining and testifying about the Kingdom of God? The first time we see the Kingdom of God mentioned in Acts is when? Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one verses three through six all through acts in fact there's about five passages that reiterate something about the kingdom of god you have these statements that are uh, that are made and it starts at the very beginning uh, paul is talking about this and first of all in acts 1 3 through 6 uh, Jesus is talking about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. For 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus is instructing the disciples about the kingdom of God. What is he telling them? Well, part of this goes back to understanding the, the, we'll get into this in Matthew, the parables of the kingdom, which are designed not to teach about the kingdom per se, but about the interim between the, the time of Jesus and the future coming of the kingdom, and so that is a major topic that Jesus was focusing on in the kingdom. And still, the disciples were not uh, were still confused. And it, in Acts one six, they asked, "Well, Lord, will you restore the kingdom at this time to Israel?" He doesn't correct their understanding of the kingdom. He's still emphasizing it's a literal, physical, geopolitical kingdom with Jesus on the throne of David ruling from Jerusalem. It's not a spiritual reign or a spiritual rule. The next time we see, uh, see this mentioned is in Acts 8.12. Here... The Samaritans are the focus. In first chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're saved. He's giving them instruction. They're Jewish. Here he's talking to the Samaritans, which were sort of a mixed breed. They, they believed in the Pentateuch only as the Word of God, and they had their own temple. Uh, up on Mount Gerizim, which we vi- I visited last May, and which we'll visit hopefully when I take the next tour group there. It's tremendous. It's, it was modeled on the temple in Jerusalem, and it's a tremendous uh, archaeological site. But um, the Samaritans had their own view of the kingdom. So Peter and John had to straighten out their concept of the kingdom, that the kingdom had been offered by Jesus that it had been rejected by the Jews and it was being postponed and would not come in until Jesus Christ returned to establish the kingdom in the future. Third place in which the kingdom is taught is in Acts fourteen twenty two. In Acts fourteen twenty two, Paul is teaching in um, the area of of. Um, of Asia Minor, or what we'd call Turkey today, and he is teaching about, this is in the area of Lister, Derby, and Iconium, and he's he's preached there, and he made many disciples. He returns through these cities, Lister, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and challenging them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now I want you to notice something here. First of all, he's talking to believers. Okay? This is crucial for understanding Matthew in the in the uh, sermon on the mount. He's talking to disciples. He's just led them to the Lord within the last few weeks. They're already believers. But now he's going to teach them how to enter the kingdom. How to go into, it's the Greek verb, eis to enter the kingdom. Now, a lot of times we think of entering the kingdom as being equivalent to getting saved, to getting justified. But here's a clear passage where entering the kingdom doesn't mean getting eternal life so you end up in heaven. It's talking about entering into the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom. He's addressing those who are already disciples, who are already believers, and he says the way to enter the kingdom is going to be through many tribulations, through much adversity. Now, that's not a free grace gospel. You enter into... You you gain eternal life by grace through faith. You simply believe the gospel. But if you want to have a full experience in the kingdom then that's going to involve suffering with Jesus, according to Romans chapter uh, chapter 8 as well. So we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom. So he's talking about spiritual life truth there, and he's talking about the fact that as believers we have to, if we're going to live for the Lord, we're going to encounter suffering and adversity in this life. The next place that... Oh, and and one more thing is he's taught, although there are Gentiles in this audience, remember you didn't have Gentiles before, you had Jews in Acts 1, you had Samaritans in Acts 8, but in Acts 14 you have a mixed audience of Jews and saved Gentiles, Jews and saved Gentiles. Now in Acts 19.8 he's going to be teaching in a synagogue in Ephesus, and we're told there he went there and spoke boldly for three months, Reasoning and persuading, notice, he's there to convince people, not just to present an uh, a, a, a dispassionate uh, explanation of the gospel, but to, in, to challenge them and persuade them and convince them that this is true. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if God wants them to be saved, he'll apply that to their heart. No, he is... Explaining, he's, he's exhorting, challenging, persuading, he's marshaling evidence to convince people of the truth of his position. Question for us is how much evidence can we marshal off the top of our head to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know enough about the Word of God to present a convincing argument that Jesus is the Messiah? So he, he's in the synagogue, so who's, who's the object of his teaching? It's Jews. Some become believers, some don't, but he's teaching Jews because Jews have a frame of reference for understanding the kingdom of God. Unsaved Gentiles have no frame of reference for understanding the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God wouldn't mean anything to them. And then the fifth place he mentions this is in Acts 20.25 20, where he says he is speaking about... Um, Indeed, now and now he's talking to the Ephesian elders. This is after he's come back, and they come down to Miletus to meet him, and he says, Indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So again, he's reminding them it's a mixed audience, Jews and Gentiles, but they're all saved. Now, from these passages... And in Acts 28 and Acts 28, 23, and 31, are in our context, what we're studying, uh, Paul is teaching the Jewish leaders in Rome about the kingdom of God. So what we see in these passages is that, first of all, the the primary people to whom the kingdom message is given involved unbelieving Jews, uh, uh, Jewish believers, Samaritans who believed in a in a messianic kingdom. Second observation is he never presents the kingdom, the kingdom is never presented to an unsaved Gentile audience. They don't have a frame of reference for understanding it. Jews would, unsaved Jews would, because they know the Torah, they know the Old Testament, but unsaved Gentiles wouldn't have a frame of reference. So he doesn't bring something into the conversation, they don't have a frame of reference for understanding He'll keep, when he's talking to unsaved Gentiles, he keeps the focus on the cross. Don't get, and the principle for us is don't get distracted by non-essentials in communicating the gospel. And then fourth, what we see in, in Acts is that the kingdom of God is never equated to the church. It's never equated to the church as the same thing, and it's not viewed as something that had currently come into existence. We're not living in some mystery form of the kingdom. We're not living in a spiritual form of the kingdom. It's presented as something distinct from the church and something that is yet future. Now, as Paul, why is it that Paul's explaining the kingdom program to the Jews? it's because the question that continued to come up in the first century was if Jesus is the messiah why didn't we see the kingdom why haven't we brought in the king? and that's still a problem today in the history of Judaism it took about 800 to 1000 years before they could really articulate some profound uh uh, uh um, some profound answers to christian witnessing and and they in the process they finally got around by the around the uh, 10th century 11th century to construct answers uh, to Christian presentations of the gospel they redefined Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and some other passages in the 12th century you had an individual that came along who was one of the most remarkable leaders in uh, the history of Judaism a man by the name of Maimonides. His name, his Hebrew name was Moses ben Maimon. He was a Jewish rabbi, he was a physician, and he was one of the uh, greatest uh, philosophers of of any generation. Uh, His name is Maimonides. And he wrote volumes on the Torah. In fact, he wrote one of the first complete commentaries on the Mishnah. And he is one of the primary rabbis that any rabbi today would study. Uh, Rabbis are a lot like priests. They study what other rabbis wrote rather than the Word of God, just like Roman Catholic priests study the traditions of the church fathers more than they study the Bible. So what were some of the things that he said the Messiah would do when he comes. How would we be able to identify the Messiah? He said he's going to restore the throne of David. He'll rebuild the temple. He'll gather the exiles. He'll restore the Torah. He'll be a descendant of David. He does not have to perform any signs or wonders. I thought that was interesting. This is the 12th century. He will be a student of Torah. He will force Israel to study Torah. He will fight the wars of the Lord Elijah will come before Messiah. The the battle of Gog and Magog will precede the Messiah. Messiah will purify the priesthood and the Levites. Messiah will identify those who are truly of Israel. Messiah will identify the tribes of Israel. And in Messiah's reign, there will be no hunger or, or wars. And lastly, in Messiah's reign, all will study the Lord. What does that describe? That describes the millennial kingdom outside of a couple of those in the middle related to the fact that he'd be a descendant of David and he wouldn't need to perform signs and wonders everything else relates to the ki- establishing the kingdom the Old Testament Messiah and many rabbis recognized there were messianic prophecies that predicted a suffering messiah and several that uh, Emphasize a ruling Messiah, but they saw these as two different Messiahs: the one, the Son of David; one, the son, a descendant of Joseph. They, but in the first century, they wanted the crown before the cross; they wanted the glory before the suffering. And so, in Judaism, they've they've split these, and they look at Jesus and say, "Well, Jesus wasn't the Messiah because Jesus didn't bring in the kingdom." And basically all these things that Maimonides listed here characterize the kingdom, what Jesus will do in the second advent, not what he accomplished in the first advent. But this is typical of Judaism. When you look at tracts that are put out by various Jewish groups answering the question, why Jews don't believe in Jesus, they still list these questions. Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because he didn't bring in the kingdom. That's basically what they say. Inside one of these tracts, they say Jesus isn't the Messiah because he didn't fulfill the messianic prophecies. What's the Messiah supposed to accomplish? The Bible says that he will A. Build the third temple B. Gather all the Jews back to the land of Israel C. Usher in an era of world peace and end all hatred, oppression, suffering, and disease D. Spread universal knowledge of the God of Israel, which will unite humanity as one and Highlighted there, the, the, their conclusion, the historical fact is that Jesus fulfilled none of these messianic prophecies. See, they're looking at the fact that, that, that He didn't bring in the kingdom, so He couldn't be the Messiah. This is one of the major themes all the way through the Gospels, even why Matthew's written, is why we can say Jesus is the Messiah when He didn't bring in the kingdom. So pe- the Jews had to be taught that the kingdom was offered, the kingdom was rejected, the kingdom is postponed, and it will come in fully when Jesus returns at the second coming. We can summarize this in this particular slide in the same way, that Jews reject Jesus as Messiah because of what they assumed the Messiah was to do, rescue Israel from her enemies, regather Israel from the nations, reunite the tribes, redeem Israel spiritually, restore Israel's fortunes in the land, reverse Israel's place among the nations, rebuild the temple, reign over Israel as king, rule over the earth in peace, and renew Jerusalem as a center of worship. Those are all going to be fulfilled in the second coming. The problem is they don't understand the kingdom has been postponed. So this is why... Paul is teaching the kingdom, why kingdom is such a major issue, all the way through Acts. In Acts 28, 24, we read that the result, after a day of intense, in-depth Bible study, presenting the case for Jesus as Messiah, you have two groups. Some were persuaded by the things which were were spoken. This is the Greek verb patho, which means to... Uh, respond to a logical argument, a presentation of facts, and to be convinced that something is true. In contrast, there was another group that disbelieved. Now the Greek construction behind this says on the, should be translated this way. On the one hand, some were persuaded. On the other hand, some disbelieved. So the text treats this as if these two groups are roughly equivalent. Not as if, well, most of them believed, a few didn't, or most of them didn't believe and a few did believe. It seems to be presented as if they're roughly e- equivalent in size. Now, one other thing I want to note here, because this became an issue at Chafer Seminary about ten years ago, uh, and it became an issue in the Grace Evangelical Society, uh, there were some, and there are still some, who believe that persuasion is what faith is, and persuasion is passive. So they would say, you, you don't believe, you don't exercise a volitional decision to believe. And th- a persuade, persuasion is a process. You present Your facts, one, two, three, four, five, six. Along the way, you have to decide whether each point is convincing. When you get to the end of the process, if you have volitionally decided to accept the argument each step of the way, then the result will be you will believe. It's an active voice verb. See, what we have here is the persuasion is a, a present active participle, some were persuaded, and then uh, some disbelieved it 's a uh, an active voice there too, so that means that their volition is engaged. What happened was you get some people in the scholarly academic community who just drill down beyond co- any level of common sense and uh, this vile and one of the errors that they made was that both pistevo, as it's pronounced in modern Greek, the verb for faith, or pistos, and the, and the verb patho come from the same root. But in languages, even though two words can come from the same word root etymologically, Their usage differs. They're not synonyms. Even though at some places they almost overlap as synonyms, there are important differences. To be persuaded that something is true results in believing it to be true. But being persuaded is not the same as believing. One leads to the other. So you had a large response from the Jewish community and they went home arguing among themselves. There's an old Jewish adage that where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. And so they're having, and, and this is one of the, when, when, in my experience in the Jewish community, most Jews that I know are, are tremendous critical thinkers. And that's because they grow up in this context in the synagogue in their culture where they're always arguing and debating everything. One day they're on one side of it, the other day they're on the other side of it but but they really think have developed a critical thinking uh, ability and they argue about everything and that's important it's healthy intellectually because it helps us to understand what we're talking about better when we stifle that kind of discussion we stifle intellectual maturity so they leave They're, they don't all agree among themselves <clears throat> they departed after Paul had said one word And this was what upset them is Paul's quote from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 9 and 10. This is quoted by Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 13, right after he's rejected by the, by the Pharisees in Matthew 13, I mean Matthew 12, when he begins to instruct the disciples in parable, parables, he, he quotes from Isaiah 61, 9 and 10. which states, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear, but you shall not understand. And seeing you will see, not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. They've grown dull because of negative volition. Their ears are hard of hearing because of negative volition. Their, uh, their eyes have, been, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Jesus said, because they've exercised negative volition and because they, this has shut them down to understand or want to know the truth, I'm going to start talking in parables so we're going to enshroud the truth, make it a little more difficult for them to get to, uh, anyway. Not because uh, of any other reason other than they 've already made the decision in terms of negative volition, and then Paul applies this principle that God has brought uh, he's indicated god 's brought a judgment against some of the Jews, not all of them, but some of them, because of their negative volition, and he says, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it now, sadly, in the history of Christianity, there have been some Christians who have taken this verse to indicate that God has completely wiped his hands of the Jewish people. They're all under a curse, and this verse has been used to promote anti-Semitism. That's not what this verse is saying. It is not saying there won't be any more, uh, any salvation among the Jews, because in, in the context, there's a huge number of Jews who just got saved. It is simply that... That, that God is going to be taking the gospel to the Gentiles because the Jewish community as a whole, the Jewish leadership rejected the claim of Jesus as Messiah. Now some people have asked the question, why is it down through the ages that only a small percentage of Jews have trusted in Christ as Messiah? We need to ask a similar question. Why is it that down through the ages only a small percentage of Gentiles have ever responded to the claim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I would think, it's impossible to know, I think, until we get to heaven, that the percentage of Gentiles that have responded to the gospel is probably not much different than the percentage of Jews that have responded to the gospel. The church age is not a time period when you're going to see a huge response to the gospel. That may surprise a lot of people. There have been times when there was a huge response in some countries but overall, when you look at the billions and billions and billions of people who have lived on this earth since the time of Christ, only a small percentage has responded positively to the gospel among the Gentiles. And the same is true among the Jews. So in verse 29, we read, When he had said these things, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years. Quick summary, he spends two years in his own rented house received all who came to them, and what's he doing? He is preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things, that is, giving instruction, teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So he's in chains. Philippians chapter 1, he talks about chains. In this passage, he talks about uh, about chains, so and we're talking about in verse twenty that he was bound with this chain. So apparently, there was a, a, a for some part of the time he is uh, chained to his guards, even though he is under under house arrest. Now that brings us to the last verse in the last chapter of the book of Acts. Next time, I want to come back. I want to do two things. I want to talk about what happened to Paul after this, because Paul's life doesn't end here. This is about 62 or 63 uh, A.D., and Paul is not executed until 67, after the Jewish revolt begins in 66, but before the temple is destroyed. So uh, Paul is going to survive another five or six years, and what happens to Paul. And then we'll wrap up with the remainder of the apostle's Paul life, apostle Paul's life, which we get from uh, things he says in First and Second Timothy, and then we'll go back and do a uh, final overview on the Book of Acts. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to go through this uh, passage, to be reminded of some uh, critical principles related to uh, the kingdom of God, related to the messiahship of Jesus, to understand that. He had to come uh, and suffer and to pay the penalty for sin before he could come to rule and reign on the planet. Help us to understand the things we need to know in order to clearly communicate the gospel, to know passages of scripture, and to know how to present a convincing, uh, a convincing argument for the truth of God's word and for the truth claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.